this will release sometime between March and August is when it'll be released. <laughs> so depends on how, how bad I suck and uh, whether or not you want to hurry it out there or uh, take your time. If you're listening to this show, you have a passion for bourbon. But has that passion ever drove you so much to say, I want to run and manage my own liquor store? Well, our guest today, he took that leap. Luke Castle makes his return to the show, but not to talk about being a bourbon enthusiast, but to talk about his new endeavor, taking ownership of Ace Spirits. It's a retail shop in Minnesota who you may have heard about it from a prior guest when we talked about moving volume with shipping. Luke puts it out there for all of us wanting to learn more about the business, and he answers a lot of the questions many of us want to know as bourbon consumers, such as how do you deal with distributors? How can you get more barrel picks? What do you do about allocated bottles? And with those allocated bottles, how do you figure out and determine who's your best customer? Well, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from longtime listener Christian Madsen, who, by the way, has had his Above the Char read before, uh, with the question, why do more distilleries not use smaller barrels? Since smaller barrels have more surface contact with the juice, wouldn't it age quicker? Well, 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 Christian, you have stepped yourself right in the front center of tradition. Small barrels, uh, while used in uh, the 1800s for sure, small barrels have always been used in uh, in American whiskey, but it's not been to extract flavor necessarily. It's been more for transport. The 53-gallon, or in some cases 55-gallon barrels, are tradition. And when you have millions, I mean millions upon millions of barrels a year made, with tradition in mind and all that whiskey's coming out is really good and people like it and, and have a taste for it. There's a couple things at play here. One, they have built a consumer base off of those 53 gallon barrels. Two, the creation of those barrels were specifically for getting those flavors, the aroma and the color. And so when small barrels came out, when they started becoming more popular with the craft distillers, the people who've been putting out those 53-gallon bourbon or 53-gallon barrel bourbon for such a long time, they pushed back. And they went to the point of even doing studies showing that there's more tannic acid that's not palatable. They really did a lot to kind of push it down. And I will say between 2008 and 2012, the creation of small barrels was kind of like loose. There was not a lot of consistency in those small barrels. One barrel would taste like it was fantastic and could have been like eight years old, but it was only two. Uh, and another barrel tasted like you were licking a wood post. So I think you have, uh, you, you early on, you had some issues with the cooperage. Now they have really kind of gotten themselves in a good position and people are seeking some of those small barrels. And indeed, you have brands like 291 Colorado Whiskey that will not get a 53-gallon barrel because they love the smaller barrels. Uh, Hudson Baby Bourbon, a lot of people don't like that one. 
myself has often been on the fence with that one. But, you know, by the way, new whiskey tasters often really like Hudson Baby Burn. They have hung their hat on small barrels as well. So, you know, so I think everyone has kind of created their own brands around the small barrels. But while you can get there quicker, uh, the people who have uh, the 53-gallon barrels, they're not giving those up anytime soon. That's uh, this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Christian and get two Above the Chars read on the air, send that good question to me on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button, and if I like it, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back, everybody. Another great episode of Bourbon Pursuit coming at you, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today, actually talking with a previous guest, but the last time we talked to him, we were just talking about barrel picks and what to look for when you're going and searching for four roses, but our guest today has kind of taken a, a much different direction. He's turned himself from bourbon enthusiast to liquor store owner. He took the bull by the horns and just started running with it. Yeah, he's much much smarter than us. Uh, I see the tail end of those margins, you know, through the free <laughs> tier, and the last tier uh, gets the not. I'm just messing, but uh, yeah, it's exciting for him, and uh, I'm excited to hear plans with the store and whatnot. I mean, that's a pretty cool opportunity, and we love Luke and the Bourbon Crusaders and all those guys. I mean, they're been huge 
fans of us and we're huge fans of them. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to catch up. Yeah, I, I think this this is one of the things when I saw that our guest had purchased this establishment from actually a, a past prior guest. I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? All these worlds are starting to collide. And it's just really awesome to kind of see the evolution that people are starting to go through. You know, you've been in bourbon for so long. You understand what the the hunting and the collecting and buying bottles aspect is. And then you start looking at the business behind it and the business of spirits. And so it's really cool to kind of see that transition happen too. You're like, how can I write off my hobby? That's what we all do. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it starts. And then then you go down a deeper rabbit hole. And more debt. So. And more debt, more debt. And then you got bottles on the shelves and you got all kinds of things to worry about. And you got you to keep customers happy. And I think we're going to talk about all that. So today on the show, we have Luke Castle. He was back on episode 166, but today he is now the owner of Ace Spirits in Minnesota. So Luke, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks guys. Happy to be here. And uh, I, I apparently didn't suck bad enough the first time you had me on a second time. So I, I appreciate that. Well, it was so bad the first time. We thought we'd bring it back to redeem yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, totally redemption time. I love it. Everybody loves the redemption story. <laughs> yeah, let's hear the let's hear the Cinderella story. But uh, look, before we kind of get into that, and if people that haven't listened back to episode one sixty six, kind of tell people a little bit about your bourbon journey. Yeah, I mean, I still write for occasionally, very occasionally, sadly, for bourbonbanter.com. And uh, back in one sixty six, uh, I was on here with my buddy Brett Atlas, and we were talking. Barrel picks at the time, we were just enthusiasts. You know, we were, had silly collections. We were always hunting, trying to find the next cool thing. And I forget what year what that, that was, probably 2017, give or take. Yeah. I think it was before even stickers were hot back then. Yeah, there were no stickers. Yeah. And you could go into stores. I mean, there was that one store in Indiana that always had all 10 recipes of Four Roses on the shelf at any given time. You could, you, know, you could go pick and choose. And things have changed, obviously, quite a bit since then. But that was the environment then. And as uh, Brett and I and a bunch of others have kind of looked at this hobby and looked in our bunkers, which I'm looking at some of mine over over my shoulder here right now, it's gotten out of control. And there's definitely some uh, some room for improvement in terms of uh, being more selective and looking at uh, what I want to actually own and what I'm going to drink. And I think most of us that got into this a long time ago can admit, to, at least if we're honest with ourselves, that we have more than we could possibly consume anytime soon. That's very true. Yeah. I think Ryan was over here the other day. And I think you, you said that exact same thing. You go, look at all this shit. There's no way that you're going to drink all this. <laughs> That's what I finally realized. So now anytime comes my, somebody comes to my house, I go, open that up. Anything that's unopened, pick what you want. Cause there's no way I can drink all this. Yeah. Take anything. Yeah. It's a, it's incredible amount of liquor I have. It's, it's kind of sickening. hundred <laughs> percent. My wife is, uh, well, I had to buy the store to justify my collection. So, uh, let's just say that anytime somebody comes over that says they like whiskey, she's handing them bottles on their way out. Like here, take this, bring it home with you. We don't want to see this anymore. She's, uh, uh, a good sport, but she certainly isn't uh, enthusiastic about what we have sitting around here. <laughs> so I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and start talking about that. So what happened to to say that, hey, I want to get into the liquor business? I mean, was it because you you sort of saw the inside and you knew how the spirits business ran or just being an enthusiast and you think like, hey, I can get into this? What what made you want to make that leap? Yes, yeah, a couple things. Um being in the the groups that folks like us are in, you know, you, you have access to liquor store owners nationally and locally, and I got to be buddies with some of them. Uh, saw some success they were having. Saw that it's more than just a 
a hobby and a passion for them, that it's an actual business that can generate real cash. And, uh, you know, so that was certainly part of it. But for me, my journey on this or my, my evolution was, you know, I knew Lewis who owned the store originally fairly well. And we had been texting about a couple of things. We'd been on a pick together and he texted me one day. He's like, Hey, I just sold Ace. And I was like, shit, I would have bought it. I'll give you a dollar more than whatever you sold it for. And, you know, he laughed it off obviously. And, you know, and I laughed too. And but it made me stop and think about it and say, okay, am I just talking crap here? Or would I actually do that? Like if the, if an opportunity came along, would I step up and do it? Or am I just, uh, you know, BSing and, you know, it took me a, a little while, but I was like, you know what, if the right place did come along and if there was an opportunity for a place I was passionate about, this would be a great thing to do. And lo and behold, about a year and a half later, uh, a business broker reached out to me. She said, hey, there's these five stores coming up for sale here in Minneapolis. Uh, you want to take a look at them? And I said, sure. So signed the NDA and uh, she sent over the details. And the first one I opened was Ace. And I was like, well, wait, you know, this just sold, you know, yeah, what's going like, on? Is he trying to do an Insta flip over here with a store? Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a situation where the, the person who bought it, um, was a more of a traditional liquor store owner and was trying to run it more like a regular box liquor store. And that's just never been Ace's MO. It's a small store. It's only about 1800 square feet. Downstairs has a lot more room. That's where the warehouse is and where some of the shipping happens. But 60% of the store's revenue has always been whiskey. You know, bourbon, uh, we have a, a world-class scotch selection. It's the kind of store that I would that I was shopping at and that I would shop at. And uh, I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to do this, this would be the exact place I'd want to buy. And, you know, it's a hard thing to build, especially in this environment in terms of allocations. So to be able to kind of pop into a, a situation where there's established customers, there's established relationships with distributors and, you know, access to barrels, access to allocated items right away. That was interesting to me because I just didn't look at the space and say, okay, I'm going to go open a brand new one, fill all the shelves, and then go play all those games and fight all those battles as a new owner with these distributors uh, to be able to offer the kind of things I wanted to be able to offer to, to the customers that know and love Ace. What were you doing before this? Or are you still doing that? Still doing it. I work in the investment business. I raise capital for uh, commercial real estate for a, a large public company there. So Ace is a, a hobby. It's a fully disclosed hobby from a compliance standpoint. It'll stay that way for a long time, but uh, it's a pretty fun hobby. I was about to say, it's a, it's a hobby until you get out of debt and then hopefully it becomes the full-time hobby. <laughs> well, I actually enjoy what I do during, the, uh, during my day job. So we'll see if that ever happens, but uh, for the time being, we're happy. What were things that you were like, this is how I want to make Ace mine or how, you know, this is going to be my, my version of Ace. And before we, we would do that, I also want to mention, you had mentioned Lewis. Uh, so anybody that is unfamiliar with the name Lewis Dracus, he was actually back on episode 120 when we were talking about online retail and shipping years and years ago before DTC was ever kind of making its way out to the public. But wanted to put that out there for folks. Sorry, Ryan, I'll let you finish your question there. That I already asked it. Oh, okay. Well, I'll let I'll let Luke answer it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to me, that it's a two pronged business. I mean, there's a local aspect. There's you know, it's just, like I said, a smaller store. It's a place that historically local whiskey enthusiasts were proud to call home and proud to have in their backyard. And I think some of that had been lost in the uh, in the interim. So I wanted to resurrect that, and I wanted to do it in a way that was mine as well. And yeah, there's a couple things that I, I set out to do right away. One was to kind of clean up the store. 
you know, if you walk into a typical liquor store, you see a lot of branded things. There's all these displays and signs and neon and all that just shit in the store. And I don't <laughs> the stuff the distributor just gives you because they want you to put up and and sort of just have exactly. And they have goals. I didn't realize this right away. I'm like, why do they keep? They don't even ask in a lot of cases. They just show up, and they all of a sudden you like you leave. You show up one night. I walk in the store, and there's like these ugly disgusting cardboard displays with like three bottles on them in the middle of a, a walkway. I'm like, who put, like, who thought this was the good place to put it? And I don't have a 12,000 square foot store. I don't have room for that stuff. So for me, it was just aesthetically trying to get it to be the cool, awesome, like place that it, it was. And then from there, just restoring the reputation as a, as a place to get great whiskey and to get great picks. Yeah. Using, Hopefully, what some people agreed to be a uh, you know somebody who's picked a lot of barrels over the years and using that experience to make sure I'm getting as good of a barrel as I can every time I get offered the opportunity to select one, and then using some relationships or partnering with folks that I have in the business to to do some great stuff like uh, you know Nashville Barrel Company. Mike and um, James are good friends of mine. I did a barrel pick with them right away. Tomorrow, I have hitting a three barrel private blend I did down in Nashville back in November that I'll be the first retailer in the country to have one of those and the only so far. So, you know, be able to use those partnerships and to, to bring really cool things to, to folks in store and online. And, and, you know, that's the other part of the business is navigating that DTC landscape for shipping and making sure that uh, we're staying compliant, but offering the opportunity uh, to get these picks and to get the whiskey that we love um, into people's hands at in, in places that they may not be able to get it easily. What is the current landscape in Minnesota for DTC, just for our listeners? Uh, so I've consulted my attorney on this, and uh, you know the uh, the current law does not prohibit any shipping from Minnesota, as you uh, to know from your pursuit series. Outside of one state doesn't mean anything to any other state, so it's a constantly shifting landscape where you're trying to make sure you keep your nose clean at all times. If you get a call or an email from a, or a letter from some state. You don't go there anymore, even though it might be legal, they might decide it's not that minute. And you just have to be very mindful of what's happening and the changes that are happening there and try to stay as ahead of it as you can. And there's no easy solution to it. Again, you guys know this very well and do everything you can to make sure you're keeping your nose clean there too. Well, I also want to kind of give you a, pose a question on that too. Because we get to talk to all the people all the time, and it's not very often we get to have retailers on here. And we try to sing the praises of direct-to-consumer and really what that could mean, even at a distillery level. And that's usually what we're, we're referring to when we talk to that. But I want to kind of gauge your opinion. Like, what does direct-to-consumer mean for you and your business from just a retailer perspective? And what would happen if by some chance, like, it just got shut down, you couldn't do anything like that tomorrow? Yeah, I mean the the store itself does enough in revenue that I'll be fine. You know, it's it's to me I always looked at the shipping aspect as more of a nice to have but not have to have. But I want to grow that and I think there is a national audience for folks that want access to cool things. So if all of a sudden tomorrow they're like, "Hey, you can't ship any spiritus alcohol ever again, whether it's wine, whiskey, beer, whatever." Yeah, I think that there are some folks that would suffer mightily from it. Um, if the opposite happened and all of a sudden all the distilleries can ship directly to consumers, I think that would grow the spirit. I don't see that as a death knell to retailers. Why do you think they feel that way, though? It seems like they're always the ones put their stake in the ground and say, direct-to-consumer will kill our business. Or distributors are saying that one as well, yeah. Well, distributors have a different business model than 
they're the third cog of the two that we're discussing. So they definitely have a very vested interest in seeing that they have a reason to exist. And for a lot of brands, they're very necessary. You know, I think a lot of people bash distributors, but if you really think about what their business is, they are necessary, even though they're sometimes a pain in the butt. Um, totally. If, <laughs> if you're Four Roses, for example, and you wanted to you know, get rid of the, th- the that tier of the three-tier system, how many employees do you have to hire to get your product out to market now? How many trucks do you have to go buy? How many, because now all of a sudden you're fully responsible for taking every drop of your spirit from your distillery to every liquor store and bar in the country or to FedEx and UPS or whoever, if you're going to ship it directly. So again, I've had my runnings with distributors in the not quite year I've owned the store and some of them are less fun to deal with than others, but uh, they do have a place and they're always going to, because I just don't see these suppliers all of a sudden wanting to go out there and triple their workforce to to handle that part of the business. I totally agree. And and you're you're definitely right. Distributors definitely serve a place because yeah, most massive distilleries or massive companies, they don't want to take on that level of, of commitment. And so they definitely have that versus somebody that's like us or a barrel or a Nashville barrel company where DTC could actually really help bolster a business. Uh, I do want to kind of flip that around and say, what if all of a sudden it did open up everything tomorrow? Like, how would your business be impacted in regards of you think that, oh, we can get in more orders, like we can service more people across the nation? Or do you feel that, oh, crap, now we've been doing so well on brand recognition and name and how well we're able to satisfy our current existing consumers that are out there. Now we have competition in California and Alaska and Texas and Florida and all these different places. I think the competition there isn't other liquor stores. It's Amazon. It's it's Walmart. It's you know the really big boys that are going to come in and crush everybody. And where they are going to um, squeeze people the hardest aren't going to be on your barrel picks. I'm fully confident that I could pick a better barrel than Jeff Bezos. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of other things that he would crush me on um but you know including his wallet and his boat but uh in terms of if we were just going to go pick the best barrel i think i can i think i'm going to beat him on that one i'll and if he wants to have a competition i would welcome it so hopefully he's listening i'm pretty sure they get the the, the distiller pick yeah exactly they're getting the harlan wheatley sticker instead of sending it to north carolina abc send it to jeff exactly <laughs> amazon exactly so that part, I think, would put a lot of strain on national brands and vodka and really commoditize products, you know, because then it's a race to zero. You know, I can't operate at 5% margins on that kind of stuff, um, and nobody can, uh, unless you have that online platform built and you have, what, a thousand warehouses around the country. So, you know, that part of the business, I think, would suffer greatly. The service part, you know, one of the things we specialize in and, and try to spend the most time on is the education part of it. You know, when people come in or when they order from us, you know, our goal is to make sure they get the thing that they get the best possible product for them. And so I'm constantly working with the staff at the store and say, look, if somebody comes in and asks for Blanton's, which only happens like 30 or 40 times a day, (laughs) you know, it's, it's let's, we, we have close to 60 bottles open at any given time for free sampling. So it's okay. Yes, we don't have Blanton's of course, but here's, three other things that you might like that are similar in profile and, you know, serve a purpose. And for me, if we could bring somebody along in their journey, you know, from Blanton's to whatever the next thing is for them, you know, that's a service that's valuable and it's something that have people coming back. So that's 
that's part of it. I think the other thing that's important with a lot of these spirits, especially if it's a local thing, people aren't aging this stuff for decades. They're picking it up on the way home to drink tonight. And so for the e-commerce part of it, if they're, if they're not interested in waiting, you have to have a local presence. So there's always going to be at least some form of brick and mortar of this for people. Because you know, they like to say that the average bottle of wine is aged for 90 minutes before it's open from the, from the store. Yeah. Actually, I've never heard that before. So you talk about, you know, education service. How can you or have you thought about how you would do that on an online platform, you know, for your customers and bringing that to the the DTC side, you know, whether that's like webinars or YouTube videos or this or that? Yeah, we really haven't launched anything there yet. It was kind of spitballing out loud. I think the best way to do that is either to build your own education platform where you have the, you know, YouTube or Instagram reels or whatever you need to use from a video standpoint. I think video is the future of online consumerism. And so making sure that you have those educational pieces. I don't think that the laws are going to change anytime soon. That would allow me to send open bottles, you know, to send samples. And I don't want to be in that business anyway. That's just, yeah, now you're talking bar, like a online bar. So that's, that's something I think won't change anytime soon. And I don't know that consumers are fully willing to trust, you know, a, a sample of a poured bottle being shipped to them quite yet. So I don't see that as something that's changing anytime soon. Part of it is you just got to try it. The beautiful thing about bourbon and whiskey in general is the only way to educate yourself is to drink. We can do that. Yeah. And even the shelf turds, I'm like, you got to try this, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It it wasn't very good, but you got to try it. And I'm like, (laughs) and people like to try it, you know? It's bourbon nerds are like the biggest suckers for that. You know, you see that old joke of like, you know, hey, tell me if this stinks and they stick it in your face. You smell it, right? Yeah. Well, if a buddy says, oh, man, this bourbon really fucking sucks and he hands it to you, you're going to try it. Oh, totally. <laughs> I am every time. I'm like, let me be the judge of that. Yeah, exactly. There's no way you're right. No, you're absolutely right. This is awful. But uh, now I know. <laughs> There's another question I want to ask about the, the barrel pick side of things. So from a retailer perspective, we hear all the time and we do it on our own side with our own barrel picks as well. Constantly hearing, ah, sorry, your allocation's getting cut this year. Now we're recording this sort of in the beginning of, of the new year of 2022. And we're probably at the point now where you're starting to hear mumblings or knowing like what your allocation is going to be like from other big distilleries. Are you starting to see that sort of squeeze as they're negotiations that have to happen to say, hold on, we had this last year. We're hoping to do this this year. Like how does, how does that all work? Yeah, it's, it's the goalposts are always moving on that stuff. You know, I feel like every year the suppliers sit down and say, okay, this year we're going to focus on ABC or XYZ. And it doesn't matter what you did last year in that, in that case. And that's the frustrating part. I think everybody's got to be comfortable with the idea that you're not going to always be able to get everything you want as often as you want it. And, you know, for folks like Sazerac, because everybody wants a Blanton's pick or a Weller pick or whatever, some stores are just not moving the volume of product of the the bottom shelf that they own to be able to get the top shelf that they want. Other places like Four Roses, Mandy's the best. And that doesn't mean she's going to give me a barrel, but I think where you can have a relationship, they're going to try to find something, some way to work together. They're going to say, okay, you know, you didn't do as much last year, but you know, we're focused on this other strategy this year. So if we can help us out here and work with us there, we'll do what we can for you. You know, for me, I'm trying to play the game where it makes sense, even if it means I'm not going to get everything I want. And where I'm trying to separate from that is bring my own supplier relationships 
and to find other barrels that maybe not are normally in my market or available everywhere else and, and try to bring unique things like that Nashville Barrel Company blend. You know, it's it's fine. I can't get uh, all, all the other barrels that I want, but look at this really cool thing I did get. And, and that's where I'm going to try to separate from or, or differentiate the market. It's, man, I, I just don't know how to play that other game and win unless you have you know, 15 locations and 100 million in revenue and you're selling everything that they want you to sell. Yeah, it's it's definitely... A good way to put it is the goalposts are continually moving because you have to try to find new ways. And I think that's one of the good advantages that you have with your store and being whiskey focused is that people aren't going to come there and where's, where's, where's my bottle of Blanton's, but you can educate them with everything else that's out there because we're starting to see the market change where a lot of smaller distillers have their stuff coming online. And it's really good at, at four to six years old versus what we were, we were three or four years ago when everybody was getting burned by craft. But to also put one little asterisk on your point there about everything that has to do with relationships. I did a barrel pick with Lewis at Four Roses, and that was the year that there was the 13-year Ace Spirit selection that I got to be a part of. Oh, yeah, the uh, OESL. I remember yes, that one. Yeah, and so I've got a bottle back here. It was it, Lewis was awful nice to let me get one, uh, being part of the, the selection and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely, I do remember there because Mandy said, where, where are you all from again? And he said, Minnesota. And she goes, we don't really do a whole lot there. Let me, I think I got something extra special in the back for you all. And so she rolled out a 13 year OESO and he was like, should we get this one? I was like, you'd be dumb not to get this one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Mandy does. Oh, 100%. What are some of those newer brands uh, offerings that people are excited about in your, your region? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. What are some of those newer brands, uh, offerings that people are excited about in your your region i mean there's things that we're not getting like smoke wagons not available in minnesota yet so i, I can't get a barrel of that through a distributor but you know for we mentioned nbc that's one that that's an easy one to say yes to armagnac is an area that i'm approaching outside of the space so we just got lawn katata here and people go nuts over that yeah i saw you had a barrel pick online I'm on that one. Yeah. 27-year-old. <laughs> there's only about, I think there's only three cases of that left, so you might want to move quick. Um, 
Tequila is another place that uh, I think there's, in Mezcal, I think there's a lot of interest. I think hardcore bourbon guys that got into bourbon 10, 15 years ago when Pappy was sitting on the shelf um, are saying, you know what, it's not worth the effort to, to find other things. So they're looking for other spirits. But, you know, to your point about the local craft scene, there are a number of local distilleries here that we've we've picked barrels from. Tattersall is a great one. Um, there's a couple of that are not quite where I see, want them to be yet, but they're right on the cusp. Uh, 45th Parallel in New Richmond, we bought a barrel of rye from last year. They had a barrel of, uh, you guys aren't going to believe this, uh, they wouldn't sell it to me because I don't even know what they did with it. They did not bottle it, though. Um, they had a 10-and-a-half-year-old 177-proof rye. What? It was dark as night. It takes the enamel right off your teeth. Like you cannot, (laughs) like you can drink like a thimble of it. Was it a Canadian rye? No, it's their own distillate. Oh, really? Wow. It's these weird Wisconsin humid summers. And this, it was in like this corner of this warehouse that they forgot about. So I begged and pleaded that there's maybe 30 bottles in that barrel. That thing is empty. And I I tried and they were, they didn't like it. They, They didn't like the flavor profile, which I'm not going to tell you it was the greatest rye I've ever had in my life, but it's certainly one of the most interesting. It's a novelty aspect at that point. Yeah, they're like, well, who's going to buy it? I'm like, I guarantee you that I have 30 bourbon idiot buddies in this country that would love to own a bottle of this, including oh, you two. Yeah. Sign me up if they ever release that one. Exactly. <laughs> tell me about it. Yeah, so I'm excited about that, and I 100% agree. And the nice thing about those guys is they typically aren't being sold through the massive distributors. They're not with like the, you know, the big four or whatever. And so you can work those relationships and those smaller distributors are thrilled to sell barrels at a time. I mean, they're, they're begging people to take barrels in some cases. So if you can bring a, re- a supplier relationship to them, they'll clear them for no money. It's, it's a great partnership and a way to uh, get access to things that uh, people want. You actually bring up my next point that I wanted to get at. Now that you're in to the, the actual business in itself, because as an enthusiast, we all, and myself included, we interface in, in having our own bourbon business, we interface with distributors, but we don't actually see your side of things. So what have you learned as being a retail store owner, like how to work with distributors? Do you prefer larger ones like RNDC or versus smaller ones that only care a few handful of brands. I'm not going to make you say names or anything <laughs> like that, but like how, how is like, how is, how's the distribution game played in, in your eye and what's the kind of pros and cons there? Yeah, I would say that's the, uh, the most challenging thing to figure out as a, as a new person in this industry. It's trying to navigate who has your best interest. I mean, they all have their own best interest in mind, uh, but it's who's willing to actually take the time to learn your business and then bring you ideas that align with that. And some of them are good at it. Some are great at it, large and small. Yeah, one of the biggest in the country, I think, does a great job. I have a very good rep that's a buddy now. And you know, he can't always give me everything I want, but he'll shoot me straight. And for me, that's the, the biggest aspect is if you can't give me what I want, at least tell me to my face that it's not coming and be direct about it. Don't don't say, yeah, maybe, kind of, sort of, whatever. Just like, no, I'm sorry. Like from that particular distributor, I got very, they're one of the Sazerac suppliers and I got almost nothing in terms of Pappy and BTAC. And the little bit that I got, I had to do some negotiating for, let's just say that. But they were always upfront about it. And I'm like, all right, well, at least I know where I stand here and I can figure that out. The downside to the really big boys is they have all the brands and they want you to buy everything. And my store, I don't need 50 fucking flavored vodkas. 
<laughs> I really, I, nobody needs any, but I, apparently you're supposed to carry a couple. So, you know, but these brands are always coming up with innovations and, you know, they use that term all the time. I'm like, so you made a, a strawberry flavored vodka and you called that an innovation. So it's uh, strawberry cream this time. It's, it's strawberry it's cream. Term. Yeah. yeah a, a little whipped cream flavoring in there. Yeah. It, there's, it, you can, you could take this in 2 million different directions. Yeah. They're always trying to get you to carry that stuff. And, and I just tell them like, look, I'm not going to buy any of that. If you ever in a spot where you are like, hey, I'm one case short of hitting a goal of whatever, we'll have a conversation, but I'm never going to be your first case on that. That's just not, it's not, I don't have the the clientele that purchased those kind of things and I'm not going to carry it on my shelf because it's going to sit there. And yeah, that's one of the things that I've learned quickly is that the way that you can screw up owning a liquor store is to buy bad inventory and not sell it. You know, you're carrying costs and the, you know, the, the day-to-day cost of owning the business, having products sitting on your shelf, collecting dust is the easiest way to make sure you don't make any money at it. So do distributors like just co-call show up and like, Hey Luke, guess what I got today? You know? And you're like, Oh damn, I, I don't have time for that. You know, I wanted to run some spreadsheets today, not buy vodka. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's some of them set appointments. Um, some of them are on a regular schedule, you know, they come every Friday or whatever. There's really no set way they do it. And it's really based on size. I mean, the, the really big ones tend to be a little more scheduled. The, the smaller distributors kind of shoot you a text and be like, hey, I'm going to be in your neighborhood next week and I pop in. So some of them just show up. What about brand reps? How's that dealing with them? They tend to be a little more corporate, I would say. You know, they, they're less commissioned and uh, tend to set appointments and try to be a little more formal. Um, once in a while, they'll just pop in. Those are the folks that are setting up displays. Uh, one of the things I learned here coming out of the holiday rush is they all have these goals around placements of their displays and, and they want you to do case stacks. So the last two weeks in December, which is by far the busiest time of the year for a liquor store, these guys are just, and gals are in there constantly putting the shit up and they take a picture of it and they leave. And I just tell my staff, I'm like, as soon as they get their picture, go throw it in the dumpster. Like they, they got to... <laughs> I'm not so callous that like they have a goal, they're trying to run their business and they have some things that they have to do to qualify for, for their compensation. Uh, look, fine. Uh, you know, I'll help them out whenever I can, but not at the detriment of the layout and the aesthetics at the store. Well, I'm going to take that as an opportunity for me to start just covering your walls with Bourbon Pursuit stickers. So when people come in, they're like, oh, okay, here we go. These guys just came in for an hour and all of a sudden we see, see their logo everywhere. We'll have a life-size Kenny cutout. I'm, I'm proud to display your sticker anywhere in the store. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have fat heads, less than cutouts. Exactly. You know, besides working with distributors, what about the liquor store business do you find the most challenging that you were unaware of going into it? I would say just how fickle people are around consumer preferences. You think you have a good idea. The, the beautiful thing about retail Again, working in commercial real estate where I'm, you know, on the on a very different wavelength in terms of how I spend my time, retail consumers give you immediate feedback. You know, if you put up a display of some sort in your store, you put you do a case stack of a, a bourbon that you want to feature because it's it's good and you think people will love it, and five hundred people walk by it and nobody grabs one, they told you what they think. <laughs> right. And if you don't respond to that, that's that's a mistake. You have to be very sensitive to what's going on. And, and there's two things that they're reacting to. It's the actual bottle and it's also the price. So if you get them both wrong, you're going to collect dust. If you get one of them right, you might sell something. If you get them both right, you'll move a lot of it. 
And so for me, that was the thing that I was, that, that I needed to learn quickly because I thought I knew what everybody liked because I like it. And uh, that's not even close to accurate. <laughs> what was that? What was that first lesson then of what you thought you liked, but people didn't? Try to think of the actual bottle. There was, um, you know, oh, it was uh, Wild Turkey 101. I put up a stack of liters and I was just like, hey, this should be on every bar. You know, I think it's good bourbon. It's what, 24 bucks for a liter, I think, something like that. And I'm like, we, we should sell a lot more of it. And I like Wild Turkey as a product. I, I love Russell's Reserve Picks. I like their special releases. And to me, one of the ways that I could make sure I get access to barrels and other cool things is to make sure I'm selling a lot of their regular product. So I, I put up a stack of it and I'm like, okay, we're going to make this a, a goal. We're going we're gonna to make this a, a pursuit of the stores to try to sell more of this particular thing. And nobody gave a shit. We sold just as much <laughs> as we normally do. You know, it's, it's sold, but it like, it didn't increase our volume at all. And, and it took up some pretty valuable real estate in the store. So I'm like, okay, you know, after about six weeks, I'm like, we need to get this out of here and put something here that moves in the volume that it's supposed to move at in this location. So what advice would you give based on the feedback, you know, from a new brand trying to tap into a market or you're into your store, you think they have a great product that's priced right. What advice would you give them to start get traction in like, you know, a store or in an area? Consumer awareness is the first thing. I mean, it's if people don't know your brand, they won't try it. Um, people are, I guess that's a, 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 I'll answer your previous question and this one together. People are creatures of habit. So if they don't know anything about it, you could tell them it's amazing. But if they don't, if they've never heard of it, they can't try it, they're going to ignore it completely, especially with where prices are now on this stuff. There aren't a lot of $20 bottles, or there, there, there really aren't very, very good $20 bottles. This stuff is all $60 to $100 now. And I think people that aren't the hardcore nerds that are, are listening to everything and reading everything, they're not going to risk 80 bucks on shitty whiskey. So you have to make sure that people are aware of who you are, and you have to be very targeted in terms of getting them in there. And, and then you just got to give away a lot of free product. Our tasting bar drives our sales. I would say we have about an 80% success rate of people that try something and then ultimately buy something. They might not buy the thing that you pour for them, but they they definitely buy something um, if you give them the education and you let them try a couple things. So, you know, we try to ask questions there. Say, hey, what, what do you normally like? What's your what's your go-to? Uh, and then with that, I think the, the negative um, is equally as powerful. Be like, okay, what do you know you hate? If you don't like a certain flavor profile, we don't want to try to convince you you're wrong and, and give you more of that. So, you know, asking those kind of questions. So, you know, again, for, for folks that want to expand their brand there, I would say, you know, partner with the retailers, make sure people know your brand. So you got to spend money on advertising. You have to, you know, go through the blogs, do partnerships with folks like you guys where you're making sure that the, the folks are aware of it. And you got to build the groundswell. You know, the hardcore nerds get into it first and then it expands out from there. In the Costco free samples. Yeah, or do that. I was going to say, once once it starts expanding, then people don't care about it anymore. The, the, the hardcore nerds don't care about it. And they're like, all right, on to the next thing. Yeah, exactly. It, it, that's another thing that I knew going into it and has been confirmed is I can't build a business around just selling the super hard to get things and the really rare things to the hardcore nerds. Because they already have it all, right? I mean... They already have a hundred different Four Roses picks in their bunker and they've drank Pappy 15 years ago, so they don't care about any of that. They only want the thing that they can't have. And so you can't generate enough revenue to keep the lights on, only catering to those folks. You need to find the you know, the people new to it, the people that are just 
regular consumers that aren't as interested in chasing every new and cool thing that they're going to buy the daily staples that actually drive a real business. That's good advice. Yeah. When you talk about some of those hard to get bottles, of course, one thing that probably people want to know about is, you know, Pappy Van Winkle and antique collection. So you had mentioned you had to probably twist some elbows or do something to get a little bit of allocation this year. So what's your method on either having to sell it because we you, there's so many ways that you can take it some people are hey we're just going to sell it at secondary market prices i'm going to hold a raffle i'm going to sell it to my best customer i'm going to keep it for myself <laughs> which from a bourbon enthusiast perspective you might have thought heck i'm going to get all this allocated bourbon i'm just going to hold it off myself i'm going to have the best liquor selection around but what's your your method here yeah i was very deliberate about that before i even closed on the acquisition it was one of those things where i'm like okay I'm spoiled. I've tried a lot of this stuff. I've gotten to enjoy it for a long, long time. I'm not going to keep anything. I don't really want any of these bottles. I get to try them anyway. I go to bars and restaurants with friends. I travel for work still. You know, you see a pour at a decent place. You, you buy it there and you enjoy it for 25 bucks or whatever it is. So yeah, that that's my strategy on my personal consumption of these releases. How Lewis originally did it, and um, I'm resurrecting, actually, we are just sending out emails this week as we speak, uh, was we do a ticketed tasting event in store. We limit it to how many people can come. We keep it 50 to 60 people. I make sure that our top 10, call it, have access to the first set of tickets. And then from there, you send it out to the rest of the people that are in uh, regularly and to you know online to, to drive new people into your store. And at the event, legally in Minnesota, we can sample any bottle that we have a second one to sell. So whichever of the rare and allocated releases we get more than one of, uh, we open them. And everybody gets to try it. So in the past, uh, I've 2016, I went to the last one I went to at Ace with Lewis. Uh, we tried William Lou Weller, George T. Stagg, Pappy 10, and 15 or something like that. So, and then at that event, you raffle off the right to purchase whatever else you don't open. So even if you don't win the right to buy anything at the event, you at least got to try several rare and allocated whiskeys. Like you said, there is absolutely no way to make it fair and to sell everybody who wants one uh, what they want. This is a way where you're rewarding the folks that are are loyal to the store and to our uh, good consumers, and then also um, you know giving a somewhat fair way of acquiring the bottles people want to buy. Yeah, and at the very least, they get to try it. Yeah, I mean, nobody walks out of that thing feeling like they got ripped off or they left completely empty-handed. And you know, we've all been to these you know mega stores where there's 700 people and everybody gets one ticket and there's 15 bottles and one guy with a horseshoe up his ass wins a bottle and then his <laughs> wife wins another one. And which means nobody else gets anything. And that's just, and then everybody, you know, leaves their trash in the parking lot and now uh, walks out of there. That doesn't seem like a great way to do it. I also don't like the idea. It's cold this time of the year in Minnesota, as, as a lot of people know. And a lot of these stores are doing these events where people are camping out overnight. And I'm like, I don't want somebody freezing to death in their chair on my sidewalk <laughs> when it's 10 below here. So I, I just don't like any of those uh, ideas. That's a real concern. <laughs> You're going to have the Blackfoot. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, gang green set in on your toes. Sorry, but you did get the Pappy 15. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You scored. <laughs> so I do have another question as regards of, of figuring this out. And you had mentioned earlier of trying to figure out, you know, figuring out what sells and, and making sure that you're continually trying to push stock like that, but also trying to figure out who are your best customers. Are you figuring out this out through a POS system? I'm trying to just understand how the, how the data is accumulated for you. Yeah, we ask everybody that comes in to uh, sign up for our rewards program. 
And uh, that helps us track who's buying what. You know, we use Lightspeed as our, our POS system in the store. And then we have our online presence as well. So we can we can mingle those together and, you know, see who's buying what and uh, how often. Trying to be as smart as possible about using that data. We're not... Uh, we're not a big box, so I don't have the re- I don't have an IT department that's uh, using that data the way I'd prefer to. But for right now, it at least allows us to keep track of who our best customers are. Feed it into the AI machine; somebody will figure it out. Exactly. It's uh, I, I I hear terms in my house like SQL and other things that I have no idea what that means. So <laughs> maybe eventually we'll figure that out. <laughs> Start blasting out those mass texts. You know, today at Aces. You know. Yeah. Exactly. I guess that's another great question while we're kind of sort of wrapping this up a little bit is is what's your your sort of method for growth going here on out? I mean, you've you mentioned earlier you have a great established customer based whiskey geeks, but the goal with anything is to help grow and and kind of keep product moving and stuff like that. So what's what's sort of on the horizon for you and where do you see sort of retail growth going? Yeah, I mean to your question about how do you handle the shipment part of this, I think uh, there's some there's some ways to do that. It might require some additional locations. I don't have growth plans to have 15 stores in Minnesota, but I could see some other locations that are strategically placed around the country that uh, you know give me access to some things I can't do from here. That's not near term. I have to figure out how to make money at this first before I can afford to, uh, you know, go go nationals, quote unquote. So uh, there are some strategies there, but really for me, it's targeting uh, places that have poor access to to this stuff. You look at the state of Florida, and I'm sure it's an important one for you guys as well. You know, it's very grocery dominated. Uh, it's, it's Publix and it's Kroger's and it's you know, and if you walk into your typical grocery store, you're you're in a fifty thousand square foot building. And they got 5,000 square feet of it dedicated to alcohol. Your options aren't great, right? I mean, they're going to have Jack and Jim. They're going to have a few other things. But I don't think that's a very friendly buying experience for people that are a little more discerning. So I think having some locations around, you know, the, the people that want a better experience and aren't interested in having to park 150 yards from the front door and dodge a bunch of shopping carts to get into the building to maybe find something next to that kind of standard bottle is, is the way I want to do it. So, uh, and I think there's always going to be a, a, a spot for that consumer or for that retailer, um, out there. You perfectly described every public trip I've ever made in Florida <laughs> yeah. that I've been through to get liquor. <laughs> well, now they're all in these crowded areas where you're, you know, you're taking elevators to, to do it. Like you got to park a hundred yards away from the elevator down to a floor through Yeah. It's just, it's not what people want when they're looking for a, a specific item like this. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And it's a good idea for growth. And I also want to give a, another sort of tip of the hat to Lewis, because I know he had built up a massive email database that I was involved with years ago, because when I started getting into bourbon, I started finding different places and I was like, oh, what's this Ace place? Oh, they got bourbon, they ship. Like, let me go and add myself to their email database. So I know that, you know, there's there's definitely ways out there for anybody that's out there in the liquor world to to find new ways to, to target new customers that just don't happen to be in your backyard, but you can start growing that footprint a little bit. So... Again, another kind of tip of the hat to Lewis there. Yeah, no, he's the pioneer there. And that's uh, the secret sauce of the business. We have close to 50,000 email subscribers that uh, we lose a few every time we gain a few. So it's trying to make sure that we're providing them with relevant information, putting cool products in front of them and asking them to to share that with other folks so that we can find more people that are interested in it. And that's really the the growth engine of the business. 
Not to mention Ace is a pretty cool name too. It, you know, it is. It was. I give a lot of credit to Lewis in terms of naming, the style, everything. I have no plans to change any of that because I'm not that creative. He's a pretty creative dude, so I'm happy to take credit for his hard work. Yeah, it looks good as is. Don't need, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Exactly. <laughs> well, Luke, I want to say thank you again for for coming on the show once again and kind of sharing your story of, I think most people could look at you as kind of maybe they'll want to follow in your footsteps one day to go from somebody that's a bourbon enthusiast to actually getting into the business and understanding the retail side. You're the second person that I've known. So of course we had Blake from Bourbon and I got into it and he's doing all online, but you're doing the the actual brick and mortar thing. And and it's a really cool thing to kind of see you go across this journey and we're going to be there to follow along and just keep picking great barrels, man. I'm sure the, the masses will follow. No, I appreciate that. And I uh, appreciate you guys having me back on. I've always been a listener and uh, any chance I get to chat with you all is great. Last time I saw Ryan was at the Bourbon Crusaders event kind yes. of pre-pandemic. And I don't remember everything we talked about for several reasons, but uh, I remember having a good conversation <laughs> and enjoying uh, seeing you. Yeah, it was a, that event's always a great time and a wonderful event and everything the Crusaders does for the community is outstanding. And it's always good to see you. I hope to see you in person soon. And so, yeah, thanks for all y'all do. Yeah, my pleasure. My day job normally gets me through Louisville, at least occasionally. It's been a while, but uh, when things open up, let's, uh, let's plan on bending an elbow together. Yeah, we'll be up at the AC Hotel drinking Dusties up in the top conference room. Again. <laughs> I'm in. You bring all the bottles, though, again. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. So, Luke, if people want to find out more about Ace Shop there, how do they how do they do it? Yeah, just really simple, acespirits.com or on Instagram, at acespirits, Facebook, we're acespirits as well. So we keep it pretty simple. There you go. Like I said, you can sign up for their email list. I was on it for a long time. Always got to see what new bottles were coming in, the things that they were doing, having events in the store. It was really kind of cool. So if you're in the area, you need to go and check it out. So make sure you go follow them. Follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials as well. We also have an email list. You can go to bourbonpursuit.com, sign up, and you'll never miss an episode. But with that, cheers, everybody, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>